settle on the person of Abram. Uh, and you know him as Abraham, except here he's still known as Abram. And he's this former pagan who has left his land, his home, his kindred, and he has come out into the land of Canaan. And what we see here is the beginning of the story of Israel as a nation. And it is from the lineage of Abram that we see the nation and the people of Israel come into existence as God is calling him out of his previous life and calling him into a new one. And we saw that Abram is by no means a perfect person. He has his fair share of shortcomings. He has his fair share of uh, uh, things, uh, ways that he slips into unfaithfulness and unbelief. And yet God will stay faithful to his promises and he'll continue repeating his promises again and again and again, sometimes expanding upon his promises, making commentary upon his promises. Um, and he's reinforcing the idea that God is going to give him all this land. And what we've seen so far in the book of Genesis is almost this presentation of two alternatives. You can go this way or you can go that way. And we've seen that very clearly in the line of Cain. You remember Cain? His kind of lineage, pretty dodgy, got up to all sorts of bad stuff. And we read that line and we're thinking, oh man, I don't want to be, I don't want to be following that example. And then we come to the line of Seth. And Seth, these guys begin calling upon the name of the Lord. Uh, we even see one guy, Enoch, get taken up into heaven, doesn't even need to die. So obviously something pretty amazing is going on in that lineage. Uh, we see these two alternatives. And then uh, we end up with Noah, and then Noah uh, comes forth, and then we get introduced to all sorts of different characters. And here we have two characters kind of held up, one against the other. It's Abram and that old rascal Lot, always getting himself in trouble. And here he's going to have gotten himself into a lot of trouble. We see this distinction and dichotomy and contrasting between Abram and Lot as Abram is headed in one direction and Lot seems to be headed in another direction. Lot's gone for the fertile Jordan Valley we saw uh, last week and this is a decision that's going to have immediate consequences in the story we're about to read. Lot is going to get himself into a decent amount of trouble. And it's a problem that's going to require a lot of courage and bravery to get out of it. And I'm going to title my sermon today, uh, Taking Courage, what it looks like to take courage. Uh, and so we're going to start reading from um, verse 1, chapter 14. If you can read along with me. In the day, days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shememba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these, force, uh, all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. So we've already got this long list of kings uh, in this very small area of space. And you might be thinking how so many kings seem to be crammed in such a small area. Uh, geographical area. I mean, during this time, a kingdom was basically just a city-state. It was a very strong, fortified city. The structure of most of these kingdoms uh, usually was just a city with a wall and then a bunch of villages around them. And that was what the kingdom was. 
It's not some huge kingdom, not some huge country, not some huge conglomeration of states or whatever that we have today. No, this was just one city and the chieftain or the mayor, you could think, was known as the king. He was the king. He had ultimate rule. It was the rule of the dictators, the rule of the despot. Whoever was in charge was going to rule. And there were only really two exceptions at this time. And that was Egypt and Mesopotamia. Egypt was a huge empire by the standards of this time. Mesopotamia, though, was also a huge empire. And they had a king, and his name at this time was Amraphel, the first king that we see. Well, how do we know he's a Mesopotamian king? Well, he's from China. Do you remember China? That's where the Tower of Babel was built. This is Babylon. Amraphel is in a complete different league to all these other kings. This is a serious kingdom. This is a serious almost empire at this time in comparison to the rest of them. So Amraphel, big guy, but the rest of them, well, they're little kings in a city-state. And the way that you ensured your survival as a king of a city-state was you made allies with all these other kings. And then together, you were really strong. You were able to take on different enemies. You were able to combine your forces and your armies, go out, rout other kings, meet them in open battle. Uh, and so this is what is going on here. Alliances are being drawn. And we have this huge war erupting right on Abram's doorstep. Abram and Lot have moved right into the center of a huge conflict, into this pressure cooker. And now Abram, we're going to see, is going to play a huge role in the geopolitics of this land that he's moved into. And so how does it turn out? Let's keep reading. Verse 4. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh, Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country, as, in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoah, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. So, a lot of turmoil, a lot of very hard to pronounce names going on there. And here we've got Shedorlaomer, kind of the big dog, alpha dog, dominant king. And then we've got and all his buddies with him and he comes in and he takes out the king of Sodom and Gomorrah and Zeboim and Bela. And they were said to have served him for all these years beforehand. So they were kind of underneath the rule of Shedorlaomer and they would have had to pay tribute to him. They would have constantly had to pay these crushing taxes and it was enough that they had had enough of it. They banded together and they decided we're going to rebel against him. We're going to fight him. And we have this big showdown in the Valley of Sittim. Four kings against five. All these armies combine their strength for this one massive battle that usually only happens once in a generation. And here it is. This is where heroes are made. 
This is where uh, stories are written. This is where great epic poems come into existence. And this is where kings rise up and make a name for themselves. New boundaries are drawn, cities are taken, there's spoil to be had. And then we see what happens to the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their people. Verse 10. Now the valley of Sidon was full of bitumen pits. And as the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. And the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Well, the rebellion is over. Crushing defeat. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are routed. They're not strong enough. Perhaps a pack of cowards to be routed so easily. We can't know for certain. And they fled and fell into bitumen pits. You guys might be thinking, what is is going on here? Well, these are basically tar pits. They're not fun. You don't want to fall into them. They're a mineral necessary for making bricks, so people kind of, uh, they're important. They waterproofed boats. Uh, It was used to do a lot of things, but the one thing you didn't want to do with a, a bitumen pit, a tar pit, was to fall in one. Because falling in one was almost a sure death sentence. All you need is as little as four centimeters of bitumen, and that's enough to ensnare a large animal. In fact, we have huge amounts of fossils of like elephants and wolves and even people that we have found who have fallen into tar pits and could not get out. In fact, the the animal that we found the most in the tar pits are wolves, because the wolves are trying to get in and eat whatever falls into the tar pit, and they themselves get stuck. It's quite amazing uh, all the animals you can find in them. Uh, And once you were stuck, you would linger on the surface of these tar pits for about 17 to 20 weeks before it would slowly engulf you. Now, you luckily die before the 17 to 20 weeks. Sounds pretty nightmarish. Sounds pretty, uh, you know, for me, my greatest fear is being buried alive, getting stuck in a tar pit. It's probably up there on the list, don't you reckon? It's probably not a good way to go. And this is what happens to a whole bunch of the men who had come out to fight from Sodom and Gomorrah. The rest had fled into the hill country and they had abandoned their city. It's defenseless. There's no one there to stand between Chedorlaomer and and their invaders. And that's what they do. They come on in. And who do they find in the city of Sodom? Lot. And Lot has found himself in a whole bunch of trouble. What I want to know is why he's sticking around. Why, if he knew that he had his kingdom that he was kind of uh, sojourning in had just gone off and fight, fought this war, if I was Lot, I'd be like, ah, I might go hang out with Abram for a bit, see how it all settles down, see what goes on, and then I'll come back and see how it's going. No, Lot sticks around. He sticks around. And we've, just, we've seen now how foolish Lot's decision was. He didn't, last week we saw all he did was he lifted up his eyes, he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered and fertile, and all his decision-making skills were just that. Hey, that looks good. I'm going to go live there. It didn't bother him that the people of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were uh, said to be great, wicked people uh, against the Lord. And Lot identifies with Sodom. He moved his tent, chapter 13, verse 12, as far as Sodom, and he was taken, along with everything else, as spoil. He was booty. He was now a slave, along with everything he had. 
He dwelt with the Sodomites and his fate was now tied to them. They fell in battle and now he will too. And it looks like this is the end of Lot. If we were reading most normal, ancient kind of stories, we'd be like, well, that's Lot's story. See you later. But then verse 13 happens. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshol and of Anna. These were allies of Abram. Abram hears about it. He hears about what's happened. One of Lot's people manages to get, get away and finds Abram and says, Abram, they've taken Lot. They've taken everyone. They've gotten away with it. And Abram now faces this big dilemma. Lot is taken by a victorious king, a strong king. He's just taken his nephew as plunder, a king much superior in strength, experience, and numbers. How can he possibly win them back? He's got two options. Option number one, the safe option. He could send uh, a little entourage with gold and silver, and he could plead with the kings, hey, I'll give you this if you let Lot and some of the other people go. This is his safe option. Pay a decent amount of gold for his release. It's called a ransom. This would be the safe option. Option number two, the risky option, is to gird up his loins, grab his sword, grab his shield, get out, call your allies for help, and get ready for battle. That's the risky but courageous op option. And here we learn something really important about Abram. His bravery. Let's keep reading verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. And here we go. Abram pulling off some like King Leonidas stuff right now, 300 men taking on a huge army, going out and fighting Chedorlaomer and the rest of the kings. Uh, he had a bit of help though. His allies went up with him. He's got Mamre and Eshol and Anna coming with him and helping him out. Uh, but here we have something really reinforced about Abram. He is a very clever man. He is very intelligent. We already saw how intelligent he was when he went to Egypt. Stupid intelligent, like made a silly decision, pimped out his wife, not good, but he was smart. He knew that something bad was going to happen because his wife was really attractive. He knew someone was going to want to marry her and it could put his life at risk. He was clever, but it wasn't smart. But here we see his intelligence on display again. He was a tactician. He was a general. He was clever. He was a fighter. And he was able to devise a way of succeeding against overwhelming odds. And that was, you know, surprise attack, fighting at night, taking them by surprise and routing them. And that's exactly what he does. He's willing to put everything on the line for Lot. This is the moment when you go all in. There's no, you can't back out of a battle. Once the battle is met, You've got to go all out. And he knew 
It could cost him everything, but he went after Lot. We don't often think of Abram like this, do we? We hear stuff like, you know, Father Abraham, or we, we hear stuff like Abram the man of faith, and all good, true things. But we don't often think of him as a man of bravery. We don't often think of him as a general or a tactician. But here it is, as clear as day. Abram was clever, and he was a man, really, very masculine kind of figure. He had allies, he paid attention, and he was willing to take risks when he needed to, and he took immense risk here. And we know already that he took a lot of risk because he left everything behind to follow the call of God, didn't he? He was a man who knew how to take risks. Apparently not when he went to Egypt. He seemed to all of a sudden forget that he was taking risk was in his character. But at least here we can see that he had bravery. And all throughout the Bible, you can see that there are those that are called by God are called to be brave. Bravery just kind of comes part and parcel of being a follower of the God of the Bible. It's a non-negotiable. They're called to be courageous. They're called to be strong. They're called to use their gifts and talents wisely. God is constantly raising up leaders in the Bible and calling them to be brave, calling them to take risks. Isn't it sad that we don't see that in the church? Risk-taking doesn't seem to be our forte. Bravery doesn't seem to be what everyone thinks of us. And yet, all throughout the Bible, we see risk. And so Abram drives them as far north as Damascus. He chases them. And one of the good things you need to know when you rout your enemies, you need to pursue them and you need to bring them down. And he pursues them and he brings back all the spoil, all the possessions, his kinsmen, the women, and all the people. Uh, not just everything that belongs to Lot, but he takes back all the possessions of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's got everything back. He's won the day. And in that one moment, Abram was famous. In that one moment, this, not even a king, just defeated all the kings of the plain. This guy had gone out and made a name for himself. And we see that what God had said about Abram was beginning to come true, that his name will be made great. And we're here today, two, like thousands of years later, still talking about this guy. His name is made great. And like Abram, we need to be men and women of courage, bravery, not backing down to the challenge, not compromising on our beliefs or abdicating our responsibility, but speaking truth to a world and standing firm on the faith once delivered. It's a shame that Christians have this reputation of being pushovers. Because the examples of pushovers you find in the Bible, they're not, they're not people you want to emulate. The examples we find are not pushovers, but men and women of courage, stepping out into risky situations, knowing that they have a mighty God. So we had like a, we did a thing, we listed your five strengths, courage, bravery, risk-taking. Would you consider those to be in your top five strengths? Would you consider those to be something that you go, yep, I love taking risks? A lot of us probably be like, yeah, no, nah, that's not, probably in my bottom five of things if I was going to rank them. 
But it's a shame because if you read the book of Acts, we don't see weak, ineffectual followers of Jesus. Who do we see? Courageous, bold individuals of conviction who turned the ancient world upside down. That's what we see in the book of Acts. Right? If we're going to succeed where we are right now, we need more courage. We need more boldness. We need uh, the only thing that can come from the Holy Spirit, and that's the kind of spirit boldness that comes from God. We read in Acts 4, Peter and John just been arrested. You remember this story? They've been arrested for speaking about Jesus, brought before the Jewish leaders, and they say to them, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And the threat thinly veiled is, if you don't, we'll kill you. I mean, they've been, they've been killing people left, right, and center. It's about, to get, it's about to get brutal. Basically, they tell them to shut up. Stop talking about Jesus. We don't want to hear it. And how did Peter and John respond? Well, they said, no. We're going to keep doing it. And they went to prayer. And they asked God to give them courage. Acts 4.31 And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It doesn't bother me if risk-taking and courage and bravery isn't in your top five. That's not really that much of a bother to me because I know a God who can make it in your top five. I know that the disciples... During the book of Acts, we see this group of weak, ineffectual men who weren't ready to do what was required of them. And then the Holy Spirit came upon them and then they were bold. They spoke. They preached. They had courage. They were able to look at people who were telling them to stop and say, no, we need to have no in our vocabulary. We need to be stubborn in a good way. You can be stubborn in a bad way, in a good way. But we need to be soft to the Holy Spirit and stubborn towards the world. And Peter and John, they could have tried, like they they had an easier way out. They could have just been more covert, right? Don't go out in public and start talking about Jesus. Just do it privately, have one-on-one conversations, try to slip under the radar, share Jesus a bit more where it wouldn't cost them, it wouldn't give them risk, where they weren't going to get themselves in trouble with the leaders. Just like Abram, they had other options. Abram could have ransomed Lot. It wasn't out of the question. He could have tried to pay for Lot to come back. What did Abram do? He grabbed his sword. He went to war. Do you know what Peter and John? They didn't back down either. They went to war. And Christians, well, we need to feel like we're in a war because we are. Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I think part of the Christian life is a recognition that you are at war. It is a battlefield. We go to war and we go to rescue people from an enemy who have taken them captive. Just like Abram goes out to rescue his kinsmen that were taken captive, we go out into the world and we rescue people who the enemy has taken captive. Abram was a redemptive figure because he rescued 
Lot from a life of slavery and servitude and humiliation. He did not allow Lot to be destroyed and his legacy brought to nothing. He went, he took risks, he was diligent. And what we see constantly throughout the Bible is little glimpses of Christ within these figures. Little insights into what God would ultimately do. Without knowing Jesus, obviously reading Genesis, you wouldn't come to these conclusions. But when you know Jesus, you start to see shadows and glimpses and you can start to see that Jesus is almost within every page of Scripture. And Abram is a figure that points us to Christ. It's great having a character like Abram to rescue us from our enemies. It's great to have that strong figure that can come in and get rid of all our problems for us, right? It helps us to learn how we need to rescue those who are being delivered over to death. It helps us to learn how to take courage and to give our lives for the freedom and safety of our family and friends. But ultimately, Abram couldn't save Lot from the one thing that mattered. He could only delay it, and that was death. He couldn't rescue Lot from what he really needed. And that was to have his sin and the the reality of his impending death dealt with. It had to be dealt with because all Abram could do was prolong the inevitable. Lot would eventually meet his demise. And yet when Christ saw us, lost in a world of brokenness and messiness and sin and evil, lost without any hope, with not even a chance of redemption, he also girded up his loins and went, didn't he? Jesus didn't stay in heaven. It was only by Christ's sheer mercy and love and grace that he came down and waded into the filth of this world. He lived in heaven. He had, no one would blame him if he didn't come down and he condemned the entire world to destruction and yet for love he came. Without the work of Christ, we would all still be captives. We were undeserving, we were unworthy, we were lost, we were helpless, we had no hope of saving ourselves. Only this terrifying realization that we would stand before God one day in our sins, God the perfect judge, and that sentence would come on us, the sentence of condemn, the sentence of uh, cast out, the sentence of eternal destruction. And yet, Jesus stepped in. Yet Jesus called out his own. He came to seek and save. He came to seek for us, just like Abram went and sought for Lot and rescued him. He sought for himself followers out out of this world, those who would walk the narrow path of salvation, those who would choose the narrow path over the broad path that many walk down. He would seek these people and he came and he routed the forces of darkness and he saved us by grace through faith. And what did Lot do to kind of get himself free from this situation? Well, nothing. He was helpless. He was in a desperate situation, really. Abram was his only hope. And in the same way, Jesus rescues us from a desperate situation. We need that rescue. It is only by faith that we can be saved. The famous, I think it was John Owen quote, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. We can't contribute anything to our salvation. It's all a work of Christ. But you've got to leave your captives. 
What good would it have done Abram if he did all of that to rescue Lot, finally gets to Lot, and Lot's like, oh, I kind of like it here. They're kind of nice. They feed me this nice little lentil oat thing, you know. You'd be like, what on earth are you talking about, dude? We have to leave our captors. Jesus rescues you into something. He brings you from somewhere, namely captivity to sin, into freedom. You have to move into freedom. You can't stay where you are. What good would it have done if Lot stayed there? Nothing. You have to move. If you believe in Jesus and trust in him alone for your salvation, you will be saved. But if you don't leave your prison, well, then there's a problem. How can you be free if you stay? You can't stay in it. Indeed, all those who are truly saved can never stay in it. Courage in the face of overwhelming odds is a work of the Holy Spirit of God. And we start there and we start here with this basic message of Christianity that all those who trust in the name of Jesus will be saved and receive forgiveness for their sins. And they will receive the promised Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit enters into our lives, then we can begin to be courageous. And for all of those who say, look, courage, bravery, risk-taking, it's, it's not me, it's not my personality. Well, the Holy Spirit of God resides in you. The Holy Spirit will start moving you towards that. Fear and temptation begin to be chiseled away from you as the Spirit works in your life and brings you somewhere. We need more men and women like Abram in the church. And I know only one way to get there, the Holy Spirit. There's only one way. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would give us boldness and courage. We must remember that men like Abram don't come out of nothing. They don't just spring into existence. Abram knew God. Abram was walking with God. Abram was learning from God. He came alongside God. He began trusting in God. And you can't begin to walk with God until you have come to know Him. Jesus says it better than I can. Matthew eleven twenty-seven 27 and 30. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now we remember verse 28 to 30, but we forget 27. The only way to know the Father is through Jesus. As Jesus says here, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The Son chooses to reveal the Father to us. It's really simple. If you want to know the Father, you must come to Jesus. There you will find freedom and rest from your labor. No longer will you carry that heavy burden of sin and death. No longer will that burden of performance and doing the right thing. There is no secret prayer, prayer that can save you. There's no secret ritual. There's no religious deed. There is nothing but faith and faith alone in Jesus that can save us. That is where we know the Father. Jesus says, only I can reveal the Father to you. 
only those whom I choose. Right? So what does Jesus tell us to do? What is our response to verse 27? Come to me and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, when we look at a man like Abram and we see his courage and his risk-taking and Lord, he lived in a different time. We can't just grab our sword and run into battle. But Lord, you have given us your spirit and you have put us in the one battle that matters. And you have equipped the local church to be a herald and a beacon to a lost and dying world. And Lord, just as we see here with Abram, you came and rescued us from captivity and Lord, we did nothing to deserve it. Lord, we know that boldness and courage only comes from your Holy Spirit. And we need that courage. We need that boldness. We need, Lord, we need all uh, the, the power and the might that only comes through you. And Lord, for us that feel cowardly, we feel weak, we feel lost, we feel, rant, uh, we feel uh, routed, Lord. I, I pray that your Spirit would once again remind us of the truth of the gospel, that, Lord, we would be fired up and passionate and ready to take the kingdom uh, here in this area. Lord, wherever you have put these people here at church, wherever their sphere of influence is, Lord, I pray that you would begin to give them courage there, to speak boldly, to take risks, to do things that before they would never have been able to do and they can know that this only comes from your spirit. So Lord, please build this in our church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.